Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello. I'm Carl Christopher and welcome to For the Love of Hip Hop. This is the show where we invite guests to speak to us about what made them fall in love with hip hop. In the show, guests will give us their insights into the key records, places, spaces, people and objects that shaped and influenced the taste in hip hop culture. In the first season, I'll interview the first generation of hip hop heads, those who directly experienced the hip hop genre storming and forming its way into the cultural landscape. Now, the most prominent music genre across the globe, hip-hop is here to stay, and we, you, love it. I always say to people that if hip-hop had arrived in the UK with De La Soul, for example, it would have been very, very differently accepted. But it arrived with this kind of attitude and this way that you had to be and this kind of anger as well. That is really interesting because I think for many hip-hop fans who kind of got into hip-hop in the 80s, their lives have been governed by these rules that were made by flawed men. For the love of hip-hop, stories from the vaults of the culture. My guest in this episode is Charlie Dark. Charlie can be best described as a creative polymath. Charlie operates in the music and fitness industry, innovating and leading in both sectors. Charlie has been a music recording artist with Attica Blues. He's a club DJ and broadcaster, a creative writing teacher, yoga teacher, and the founder of Run Dem Crew, an, al- an alternative take on the running club that is committed to change and uplifting the next generation. Charlie's next project is Rundem Radio, an internet radio station that seeks to bring unheard voices to the airwaves. As a DJ and broadcaster, Charlie has arguably an enviable record collection. I personally know that he loves a head nod to a shady <laughs> beat. Charlie, long time coming. Welcome. Oh man. Uh, thank you for having me, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Brilliant. That was a great intro. In the show, this is um, our love of hip-hop culture and our love of hip-hop. And the first question I always ask my guests is, before hip-hop, what did you listen to? Before I started listening to hip-hop, I was listening to the record collection of my mother. And my mother had studied in New York in the 60s. And so she arrived in London in the late 60s with this amazing record collection filled with lots of James Brown, lots of Motown, lots of soul music, and then the obligatory high life classics. So that was what I was listening to before I kind of discovered hip hop. And what was in those high life classics? Tunes like Sweet Mother. Uh-huh. Um, to, oh. That's the only one that I actually really remember the title of, but there were kind of various different other things that you heard kind of at family christenings and gatherings and weddings. And it was just kind of this soundtrack of African music that you kind of became a bit oblivious to because it was just always around you. 
which is why I find the kind of fascination with African reissues really interesting because a lot of the stuff that I you know that I hear I'm just like ah, that was cool but that wasn't one of the classics I kind of have that same experience now with Trojan music with my family from the Caribbean yep. and Trojan records was just a staple in our, in our home there were yep. just these records which we had yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they became a trendy reissue thing, I was like, "Oh, the Israelites." We used to hear that almost every single day. <laughs> yeah, most, most definitely. It's really weird, actually, because I know definitely, as you know, as a DJ, there's a lot of music that I kind of grew up listening to. You know, and I think that when you when you're from a culture where you're growing up listening to music, a lot of times what happens when you start playing that music, you're not considered as innovative as someone who, you know, discovered it in later life. Mm-hmm. I'm being diplomatic with my words. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what um, and it's against the same thing as Bob Marley. Bob Marley, there was a stage where I got tired of Bob Marley because it was just around. Yes, yeah. And when yeah. I walked away from it and came back to it, I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a kid at school whose dad was really into classical music and he had this, like, amazing valve kind of audio system and anyone who ever went to his house would be freaking out and i was just like oh we've got a valve system it's called a gramophone like it was just one of those things that you had it was like every every family member i knew had a sound system of some sorts in their house i found it really weird when you'd go to people's houses and like you know they didn't have a record player they didn't have a stereo like what's going on and discovering hip-hop, what's the first record that pulled you into hip-hop? Not, not necessarily the first record you heard, but the first record we said, this is interesting. I'm more, that really gauged your interest and you're like, I want to know more, I'm into this culture. I would say it has to be Rapper's Delight. Because I was in New York when Rapper's Delight was released. And so everywhere you heard, everywhere you went, you just kind of heard it. It was just everywhere. But it wasn't really the record that kind of piqued my my interest. That was a record that I think became one of those, you know, those rites of passage at school. Like, could you rap all of the lyrics for, of Rapper's Delight from beginning to end? And could you? I could kind of get about halfway through. And then um, <laughs> I had to bail out. <laughs> <laughs> that record was like 14 minutes long or something crazy like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well long um, but the record that I would say really grabbed my attention would be Run DMC Sucker MCs that was the record and the first time I heard that I was just like whatever this music is I am down with this this is it for me and what is it about that particular record well, where, the way I heard it was we, I was at school and we were going to play a football match and we were walking across the road from our school to the playing fields and this Ford XR2i, kind of, or was it like a Ford Fiesta, hatchback came past, blue, windows down, pumping out this music. And there was just something about the attitude and the rawness and the lyrics and the bass that just really kind of stopped me in my tracks. I was just like, this is really good music. This has had a real kind of impact on me. I really like this. I, I want to find more of this. And I've been listening to like electro and 
you know, Electro 1, 2 and 3 and the various Electro compilations. But again, it was kind of, you know, they were, it was nice music that people kind of body pop to or break dance to. But the Running MC tune, man, it was just that. I, I, always, I will always, always remember that day. And there were not many records that had as much impact on me, on me when I heard them for the first time as that one. Have you heard uh, Rick Rubin's comment on though, on producing Run DMC and the the sort of sound he wanted no. to create with them? So no, but I am a big Rick Rubin fan. Uh, me too. And uh, you and I both uh, into producing and, and production. And Rick Rubin mm. is kind of one of my go-to's across all the things he he does. Rick Rubin has said that he was heavily influenced by two things when he's producing hip-hop records. They are the Beatles, because he got used to records which had a certain time frame to them. Yeah. So he got used to, you know, records were three and a half minutes. They were, they were short, they kind of got the message off across really quickly. And also the going to clubs in, in New York and going to hanging out in hip-hop clubs, mm. he wanted to hear on record the same energy he heard in the clubs so right. records like rapper's delight which were eight minutes long weren't club records because the club records had a different energy so he says yeah when i'm gonna make music i want it to be able to be played in the clubs that's great he's um he's a really great producer i always tell any of the young producers i'm mentoring to kind of check out with rubin <laughs> and it's always really interesting once they eventually kind of go and do the investigation, what they come back with. And what did they come back with, with Rick? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a kind of wake-up call and an epiphany, because I think that there's this idea at the moment that a hip-hop producer looks a certain way, thinks a certain way, mm -hmm. and produces in a certain way, and he goes completely against the grain of that, and that's what I love about him. And I also love the fact that his spirituality and his wellness practice influences his work <laughs> what age were you when you said more more or less i'm really into this culture and what what record then pulled you in okay so 83 would be the year that i was like i am down with this hip-hop culture i am in it fully i'm prepared to take the grief i'm getting from home from, from listening to this music um, I am prepared to kind of become an outsider by listening to this music. I, you know, definitely the clothes I started to wear started to change and the attitude, the way I carried myself started to change around 83. I would say the next record after that, I think Rocket was a big record for me. I can't remember if Rocket came out before Sucking Seas or after, but Rocket by Herbie Hancock was a big record for me because it kind of spoke to my musical, classical music sensibilities and this idea of bringing two different entities together to create this spectacular hybrid. And it was an exciting record to listen to, to imitate. Scratching was on it, obviously, and that was kind of quite a big thing to hear scratching on the record. And the video was amazing. So I'd say Rocket was my next is my next record. And did you have like a a classical music training? Were you did you, yes. were you train classically in music? 
Yes, I did. I had, I did. I've done ten years of piano and violin. Played in orchestras, <laughs> and, and um, I only stopped playing because I kind of got to the point where I didn't want to. I, I didn't like being the outsider in the orchestra as well, and I also fell out of love with classical music and the constraints that were placed upon me. And this almost idea, I think when hip-hop kind of start, arrived in the UK and started permeating into culture there was this resistance that it wasn't really music and so I wanted to play Stevie Wonder I, I wanted to kind of you know play more dance orientated music and I was just being forced to play classical music and I was just kind of I'm like I, you know I tapped out I was like I'm done as soon as I kind of got to the stage where I didn't have to do, do the practice or go to the lessons anymore I gave it up it's one of the biggest regrets um, that I've ever had because I was good I'm really good and do you still pick up instruments now? yep I can still pick up I still potter around on the piano I can program a nice string arrangement on the computer <laughs> but I haven't played my violin for a few years but I still love you know classical music and strings and all of that kind of stuff so were you uh, were you that kid who used to pull their violin along with them in, in the street travelling from one neighbourhood to the other? yes I was that kid when they, they I think there was just a year when the government suddenly decided that more kids should have accessibility to playing instruments and it was almost like you went to school the next day and the most unlikely people were coming home with violins and trumpets and you know various different instruments and it was kind of a quite an exciting an exciting period of time to be because you would see other kids reluctantly walking to school with their violin and you give them the nod like ah oh, I know the pain that you're going through I think there was a kind of definitely in African and Caribbean kind of households in the 80s there was this kind of pride that there was a child who was learning an instrument and they would wheel you out at family gatherings to kind of entertain the elders I hated all of that did you? I really did yeah I did but I really didn't like it I just didn't like being on the spot and having to entertain before I'd really mastered my instrument yeah, it really kind of um, didn't really sit well with me. Yeah, it's kind of. Did you feel like you're just a, a performing to a certain? Yes, yes, yes. Perform for others. Yeah, I found it very competitive, and it wasn't what I liked about the instrument. You know, and no one ever talked about kind of how the instrument made you feel or the emotion or any. It was just, it was just pure technique, 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 technique. I just I didn't like it at all. What would be your next choice of records, which says, like, this culture is just it for me. I'm so immersed in it. I would have to say, you know, obviously, when Public Enemy dropped, that was a big album for me. First album. Seeing them live, that was a big moment. Eric B and Rakim, um, Eric B for President, that was a big record for me. That was another one of those records where it just sounded like New York. Yeah. It, had, it just had this sense of... As soon as you heard it and you heard the intro, it just kind of reminded you of being of New York. And I was fortunate because I was going back and forth to New York a lot during the 80s to see family friends. But that, that record definitely reminded me of like being on the block, hearing those big sound systems roll by, seeing it, you know, seeing hip hop in real life. Because I think for many people, they hadn't actually seen it in real life. They, you know, because there were no videos. There's no MTV. There's none of this stuff. You know, there wasn't really the, the or there was 
MTV, but not everyone had access to it. And so actually records that kind of gave you a sense of place and time were really important. And Eric B. Reckon, you know, Microphone Fiend. In fact, just the first Eric B. album for me was like, okay, these guys are rocking Gucci. This is some Gucci I've never seen before. Who's making their clothes? Dapper Dan. Okay, who's this Dapper Down guy? Does he work for Gucci? No, he doesn't. Oh, he's making stuff for them. He's making stuff for Mike Tyson. He's making stuff for this person. You know, that was kind of like, almost like the cementing and threading in of a world that this music is not just in music. It's now permeating into culture. So it's in boxing. It's in sport. It's in art. It's all around. And that was really important for me. Because again, it just kind of reinforced this idea that I don't have to follow the path that has been set out for me by my family or my school. I can actually make a living for my passions if I believe in myself enough. I came in the door, I said it before. I never let the mic magnetize me no more, but it's biting me, fighting me, inviting me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. The rhyme will be kicking in till I hit my last note. My mind remains a fine, no kind of idea. Self-esteem makes it seem like a thought took years to build, but still say a rhyme after the next one. Prepared, never scared. That record, Eric B for President, has come up with quite a lot of people I've interviewed <laughs> in this series. Yeah. So it does seem a seminal record, which which has pulled a lot of people in. So yeah. what is it about that particular record? What is it about that record? It reminds me of classic New York hip-hop radio and tapes and tape culture and the exchanging of tapes. And, you know, you get your African auntie, she'd be going to visit her relatives in, like, you know, in Queens. And you'd be like, okay, so bring me back a pair of Air Jordans and, and here's a cassette so you can tape one of these hip-hop shows for me that comes on at you know, silly o'clock in the morning fronted by a DJ with a name that's unpronounceable. <laughs> it just, you know, and that just record just reminded me um, of that. And also what was good about that record is this idea that you, you know, if you were down with hip-hop, then you were down with a crew. Because whenever you saw Eric B and Rakim, there was like a crew of people that rolled with them on the album covers, you know. In, you know, in the magazine articles, they were never alone. There was always people with them. And that was really attractive to me, this idea of kind of, by getting into a form of music, you could actually form a friendship group that would nurture you and protect you. So protection was very important at that period of time in my life, feeling safe. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel safe. The music I was into, when you went to the jams, there generally was always some form of altercation. It was always a bit edgy. And I wasn't rolling into these places with a big crew. A lot of times I'd go solo. So that record actually planted this idea of the collective in my mind and the importance of the collective. (laughs) Did that classical training kind of facilitate your uh, love of hip-hop and how you appreciated hip-hop records? No, because I didn't really understand how hip-hop records were made. And that took a really long time. It took a good few years before I actually realised how they were made. I grasped the DJing side of things pretty quickly. There was um, a kid at school who got 
turntables for his 15th birthday, Technics turntables, mm-hmm. which was like a, you know, the only, I'd only ever seen them at a park jam. And so to actually have someone in your circle of friends who actually had their own set of turntables in their bedroom kind of meant that our acceleration pr- process of learning how to DJ kind of sped up. But I didn't know how you made records at all, and I didn't know about samplers, and that didn't come until until I was in um, first year of uni is when I really discovered um, how records were made. And what was that journey like when you discovered this is how a hip-hop record worked, this is how it's constructed? So I'd gone to see Norman Jay play in Shoreditch. He was playing at a club called The Bass Clev, which was a basement club in Hoxton Square that then later went on to become the Blue Note and where Metalheads was and Dusted and various different clubs but then it was just like this dive of a club in a part of East London that no one ever went to that was really difficult to get home from I was living in Richmond at the time so it was a real proper trek yeah as Hoxton is lauded as this trendy place but I remember when it was a a, a no-go area it was a no-go it was a hole there was like you know two pubs one club and that was it it was, it was there was nothing there and I remember going to I'd start listening to Norman Jay on Kiss FM um, and then I started going to his night the uh, it was called the original Red Groove show and I think it was a Monday night and what was really interesting about the night it was a kind of the, it started with the lights on yeah. and as the night progressed the lighting would get darker so that was kind of one of the first things and it was a basement club and so there was a sense of adventure you know from going from the front door down to the dance floor kind of very topsy-turvy weavy place to go through and you know at that time you didn't really hear hip-hop records played that much outside of hip-hop jams and so you know obviously at places like delirium and raw you know there was the you know the hip-hop thing but it wasn't like a, this mass thing where everyone was playing hip-hop so i'm at this jam there's no hip-hop being played and i'm kind of digging the music it's kind of cool and then he played what i thought was the break was the beginning of straight out of the jungle by the jungle brothers i'll always remember i remember getting up and running into the middle of the dance floor getting ready to show off my moves and then all this singing started <laughs> and I was like what is this like what is this record this isn't the Jungle Brothers record and I remember going over to the decks and I was like this isn't the Jungle Brothers record and he's like no it's Mandrill didn't tell me what it was just said it's Mandrill and I just had this moment I was like man they're they're making these records out of other people's records wow it just was a real kind of moment of like almost like the Wizard of Oz when you get to the very end of the film and they pull back the curtain and there's this little old man with kind of manipulating the world and I was like right wicked brilliant okay so it's sampling cool how do I do that and I found out in my uni that they had a recording studio that only the film students could use and so I bought myself a Super 8 camera and started making films so that I could get access to the editing suite so I could get access to the music studio so I could use the sampler and that's how it all began I made a student film and then made my own soundtrack and did you uh, was there a manual you looked at or was it just listening by ear there was an engineer and he you know he knew what was going on so I literally just went in and was like I had a Marvin Gaye record 
and I think a Martin Luther King speech and I looped up the, Mar- the Marvin Gaye record and played the speech live over the top and like that prototype was, public enemy prototype public enemy and that was that was my entry into this world and then after that I was like right okay I now need to find out as much about this sampling thing as I possibly can so I spent the next three years kind of trying to do that and was that collecting samplers or just finding how how did you it was just it it was about i met this guy in my uni soon after that called kurt de giorgio who's a big techno producer and he he knew about pause tapes and so he taught me how to make a pause tape he showed me how to how you know you play it and then you record and you spin it back and then you loop the next bit and he taught me how to do that and so that was kind of my elementary making, you know, beats. And then I bought a four track from someone else and started making stuff from that. And then by the time I'd met James Lavelle, um, you know, in Donish John's in the kind of early 90s, by that time I was kind of, I was ready to start making records on a more professional kind of level. So this is James Lavelle of Moax Records. Of Moax, yeah. Yeah. The creator one of the the leaders in what became known as trip hop yeah most definitely so yeah so that's kind of how you know the early the early start began and just trying to spend as much time around music studios as i could and you know to learn as much as i was allowed to learn because at that time people were very secretive with their techniques and there wasn't any youtube so for, you know you'd hear things on records and be like how do they do that particularly when the drum and bass stuff started happening it was like how are they doing that I don't know how they're doing that and then you'd kind of hope that someone would like bring you in and were you learning of fellow hip hop um, enthusiasts such as yourself or was it the standard recording studio engineer at first it was um the recording studio engineer but then I met a group of people called Pressure Drop who had a couple of records out and they had the studio and I worked for a you know kind of like a music publicity company which was underneath them so I used to go up to their studio and watch what they were doing and then I met Tony and then that was kind of like I finally had met someone who had come from the same cultural background as me knew the same references understood the importance of South London and was rebelling as well against his parents so it was like a perfect marriage and tony was your is was your partner yeah in Attica Blue. yeah and he knew you know he knew what he was doing and he worked in a, a shop called turnkey in charing cross road which was one of the only shops in london that sold kind of music equipment and he was working in there so when i met him it was on it was like right i found this guy he knows exactly what i'm trying to because that's the most frustrating part I think when you start is you've got all these amazing ideas but you have to go through someone else to make those ideas a reality that was really frustrating to me I've, I've spoken to Tony many a time and I get like he knows his stuff he's like yeah. <laughs> an yeah. encyclopedia of music sounds and knowledge yeah. and how yeah. to yeah. yeah he definitely um, is an entity <laughs> to his own he's a very special character indeed for the love of hip hop, stories from the vaults of the culture. So I get the impression by now you 
immersed yourself in the culture, you're practicing yeah. it. Yes, I am. Um, let's say you've made that leap from being uh, interested in hip hop. Were you into breaking and graffiti and all, all the yeah. other elements to it? Most definitely. I think anyone who was into hip hop in the eighties, you just accepted all the elements. You just absorbed it all. I went to school with lots of great, you know, graffiti artists who were still painting today. You know, a lot of them have moved into street art and kind of contemporary art, but they're still very active. I was definitely going to the jams. I was hanging out with the break dancers and break dancers. I, I was in it. I was just like, this was, it was just a, it was a subculture that just arrived in my life at the right time because it gave me a voice and it gave me something to believe in and it gave me something to stand up for and it gave me a history to investigate that I was interested in and it was you know I can't it's weird now when you talk about hip hop in that way is like saving your life or being your north star but I think at a time when you could just you would look at someone's shoes and just knew that they were into the same music as you and because they were into the same music their beliefs were probably around you know similar to yours and so there was this synergy and friendship that would happen almost immediately just from the fact that someone had fat laces in their shoes so how would you compare something like drill which is ag like aggressive music yeah. with attitude mm -hmm. to yep. the pioneer in hip-hop music because they both uh, had aggression to them yeah i think you know i don't, i never ever wanted to be and i never want to be one of those old guys who's like back in the day was better and the music the kids are listening to now is this and that and so on and so forth you know, back in the day, I was listening to hip hop. I'm sure if I was 15 now, I'd probably be listening to drill. I think the problem we have now is balance and context. So when hip hop arrived, because it was so new, as well as the people who were making the music, there were the people who were writing about the music and explaining the music and contextualizing the music and kind of writing books about the music. With a lot of the, you know, the stuff that's around now, People aren't really writing about it in the same way. So it's very easy to, to focus on the negative aspects of it and not to focus on the, the positive aspects. So as someone who teaches English and creative writing in schools, what I know is in the same way when the grime movement came round and, you know, you, we'd be in schools teaching in some real hardcore schools and the kids would be like, you know, you'd have kids who'd be really deeply into grime because they were into grime, that was allowing them a pathway into the English language. It's the same thing with drill. Some of the content may not be for me, but I'm a 50-year-old man. Mm -hmm. But I can't dismiss the artistry or the creativity that goes into it or the people who become entrepreneurs because of it. You know, I have to celebrate that. Obviously, you know, as a parent, you know, I worry about some of the lyrical content, but I think it's all about balance. You know, and I think it's all about balance and I think it's also about you know, people like to demonise the youth and anything that the youth do before they've really kind of sat down and had conversations to find out why does this music sound as angry as it does? You know, what is it? What is it that you're going through that's really causing you to kind of, you know, rap and speak in this way? So, and I, and I, and I if I, you know, if I look back at Grime and Grime first dropped and people were freaking out and being like, it's not music and... You know, I remember being in, you know, in Sony meetings and talking to people about people making beats on PlayStations and people looking at you like, 
what are you talking about? Of course, I'm not making beats on play- PlayStation. Like, I've seen it. I've seen it happening. I'm like, I've got kids coming to the studio to do sessions. They've got no NPCs, no drum machines to bring in PlayStations with their music on. People dismissed it. Same way people are doing with, with Drill. But actually, there's some really amazing artists within that field who are saying some really important stuff that people need to listen to. Because hip hop came with a, an attitude, or like a can do attitude, it did. a DIY attitude. Yeah. I always say to people that if hip hop had arrived in the UK with De La Soul, for example, it would have been very, very differently accepted. But it arrived with this kind of attitude and this way that you had to be and this kind of anger as well. That is really interesting because I think for many hip hop fans who kind of got into hip hop in the 80s, their lives have been governed by these rules that were made by flawed men. These rules and principles that were kind of made by flawed men. And it's really interesting when you're, you know, when I'm in New York with Run Them Crew and there's certain people that we know who are still connected to a lot of old school kind of hip hop people. Mm-hmm. It's really mad when you hang out with these, these, these dudes. You're just like, yo, man, you're like, your values in life are a bit weird. <laughs> like, and I can't believe for so much of my life I've followed every word you said as the Bible. Um, okay, so we're going to go into the classic 90s backpack hip-hop era. And I would say Illmatic, for me, what is my record of the 90s. That record for me was, that's my Love Supreme. That's my, you know... That's my Sliner Family Stone. That's my my that's my James Brown. That record is an amazing record. As a, and the, the, the whole, whole record as a whole. Yeah, yeah. The whole record as a whole. I took, I think, a week off uni or a week off work to listen to that score, to that record, just to absorb it. And I was involved in the journey from the very, very first time I heard Nas right the way to that album drops. That whole thing was just like an adventure. And I think it was one of those... I think when he arrived, obviously there was kind of elements of Rakim in what he was doing. There was elements of Chuck D. He was like... There was elements of lots of other MCs in what he was, you know, he was saying and what he represented and the period of time when his album dropped and Black Moon's album dropped and Mob Deep's album dropped. That was a really exciting... Again, another really exciting time for myself. And I loved that album. I love everything about it. I love the cover. I love the track sequencing. The production, obviously, is stellar next level. It's you know, I, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get a hip hop album that's an, as anticipated as in as Illmatic. Nas strikes me as he's a brilliant lyricist, but there seems to be an element like he was a chosen one almost like like Tyson like you are the next one hmm. you're the ones who's going to yeah. carry this, this through and there was lots of support for Nas yeah well I think that in any any musical movement there are certain people that just pop up that are slightly that encapsulate everything that's happening at the time but add something different bring their own flavour and just raise the bar and he raised the bar. There's no way that you can listen to like live at a barbecue and not think to yourself, yo, that is a verse. 
And for a period of time, every record that he dropped was lyrically on point and production-wise on point. And I think that was what was really exciting because prior to that, you, you'd get these records that maybe would have a great chorus, but the verses weren't that great. Or the song was great, but the production was a bit ropey. And suddenly you had the best, you know, the best lyricists in the game at that time with the best producers in the game at that time on the label that understood the importance of that record. You know, it wasn't on some, you know, an obscure, it was on a major label and had major label push behind it. And it also had the support of the underground. He was the guy. But, you know, I just think he was the guy, but he proved he was the guy because he was... You, know, you listen to freestyles from that era and records like Half Time and records like One Love. I remember like when One Love dropped and I was just like, yo, this dude has written a letter to his friend in prison and is, has shown vulnerability at a time when not many other people in hip hop were showing vulnerability. And that's what I really liked about him. And I also liked the fact that he reminded me of one of those kids who is involved in the culture but is clever enough to kind of sit on the periphery so you don't get dragged down but this ability to observe what's happening and to translate that into a language that other people who weren't there could understand he's a great storyteller and at that period of time as well I was really deeply into my writing poetry performing poetry and Nas for me was like the bridge between the hip hop music that I loved and the form of creativity that had allowed me to get on stage. Particular type of poetry you were learning and crafting? I was, yeah, I was definitely interested in a lot of the hip hop poets who were coming out. People like, you know, Saul Williams, Talib Kuli when he was, you know, on the poems, Jessica Care Moore when she was doing her stuff, people at the New Regan Poets Cafe you know um, Linton Crazy Johnson people who were kind of you know being on that great role and just kind of observing what was going on and I went to New York as well I saved up I worked in the school dinner's kitchen for a couple of months and saved up the money to get a courier flight to go to New York early 90s I wanted to experience the culture but I'd also heard that there was this like hip hop poetry scene happening out there and I wanted to go and investigate and see what, what, what was going down and um, that summer I feel like summer of 92 I think was a really amazing summer for me and um, yeah I came back again I came back a changed man and what was really important about those early trips was the DIY hustle culture this idea that I'm going to make something out of nothing and I remember coming back speaking to someone who worked at ID magazine and um, and he was like what have you been up to I was like I've just been in New York been checking out this kind of poetry scene and they were like, do you want to write about it for ID? <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. I've never written a magazine article in my life, but I just was like, okay, I'll kind of say yes, work out how to do things later. That came from hip hop. record your fifth record your fifth significant hip-hop record. i'm gonna go for wu-tang first album okay why that one right so wu-tang for me was the, the arrival of a shift in the way that i viewed 
my future and the way I've, I viewed my city. And what I mean by that is I kind of got to the point where I was like, I don't want to, I don't, this music no longer speaks to me. I don't, I want to be part of this music. I don't want to watch from the sidelines. I want to be part of it. And what I found was I was just getting really disillusioned with the hip hop attitude in London. I just found like, I just felt, I just felt like it wasn't very welcoming. Do you think that and I spilled out into violence? It wasn't necessarily the violence. It was just the attitude. It's like, yo, dude, like, I know that this music that we listen to, like, no one on any of the album covers smiles, but you're allowed to smile. You're allowed to show joy. You're allowed to be happy. It's kind of, it doesn't have to be posturing and fronting and pretending to be someone you're not all the time. And... I'd act, you know, I'm going to, I was going to a lot of jams, I'm going to a lot of events, and you know, there's always something. I remember going to see, I think it was even nice and smooth, but it was definitely at Hammersmith Palais, and there was this record called Cool V's Tribute to Scratching Part Two. It's by Bismarcky. It's got a big um, Michael Jackson sample in it, so it never got released. It was only on, on dub plate. And Westwood had a copy, and. You know, he'd play it occasionally on the radio. You'd re- you know, and you'd hear it. It was like a mythical hip hop record that only a few people had. And I remember being at this jam, and someone started shooting up into the ceiling. Everyone starts running up, running around, and this record's playing. And I remember just being so vexed that this person had disrupted my moment. I'm standing there thinking, I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to hear this record live again. And I just kind of got to a point where I remember coming out of that jam thinking, you know what, I'm like, I need some, I need something else. I need something more. Because when I was going to the Rare Groove jams and the jazz, you know, events, people are a bit more friendly, was a bit more smiley. Acid House obviously is coming, you know, is in, House is coming in. And then suddenly it was just like, I don't need to buy my records in the West End and get loads of attitude. Where else can I go and get my hip hop records from? And I found out that there was like, you know, in Honest John in West London they kind of had some relationship with the distributor so they were getting everything before the records got to the West End and that's how I met James and this guy called Fraser Cook was the first person he, I remember him playing Wu-Tang Protect Your Neck on 12 inch to me went on Wu-Tang Records and you know, people look at Wu-Tang now as like, oh yeah, Wu-Tang, it's like, you know, put your W's up in the sky, la la la. But when Wu-Tang came out, they were very different from everyone else who was around at the time. Definitely. <laughs> you know, and I remember buying that record. It's independent. It's not on a major label. It's the beginning of kind of the rise of independent hip hop. And it has an attitude. And what I loved about it is it really spoke to my theatrical side because all of the MCs not only had the name but they had a character that went with it. And that to me was like, yo, this is so cool. And they're into Kung Fu and martial arts. And it's yet another borough of New York that I haven't really, you know, heard too much about. And that was exciting and a different type of slang and a different kind of dress. And yeah, that record had a big impact on me. Me Um, too. That was me too. I yeah. I love that record. Yeah, and all of the records, you know, Ghostface Killer, ODB, 
you know, Raekwon the chef. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, again, one of the things I liked about Wu-Tang is they weren't afraid to use their imagination and to play and to create a world. And it was a world that they created around them, not a world that was created around them by the music industry. So by the time they arrived, it was almost like, right, so you're down Wu-Tang? Well, this is the Wu-Tang dictionary that we wrote. You know, oh, this is the way that we, you know, you're into Clarks? Okay, this is what we do to our Clarks. It was kind of, I love that kind of independent, you know, friends coming together to make something great. And also, you know, it reminds you of the first time you hit the Bomb Squad because you're hearing mutes and things are coming in at the wrong time and things are out of key and, you know, it's kind of, you know, there's disconnect, you know, uh, that word that means that basically things are clashing together, you know. It's kind of, yeah, it's great, man. Yeah, we album is, I mean, I, I'm, I love that album, but when, you, when I first heard it, I was like, this sounds like, this is clashing, this doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. 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 This sounds a bit like a demo and they're trying to put the ideas yes. together. Yes. And I love that because for those of us who are in our bedrooms, in our studios, making music, trying to be Premiere and Large Professor and, you know, Diamond D and and not quite getting it right. It was this almost this idea like, yeah, it's okay that the drums are a bit distorted or the bass line's a bit loud as long as the vibe is there. They should have used And that they should have used compressors, yeah. <laughs> but didn't I hear that? I think I read somewhere that, or saw it, that he used a different compressor for every voice. Right. And so that's why, you know, it sounds so different. But that was a big, you know, that was a big record for me. And that was the start of the kind of delving into, into um, independent hip-hop. Daddy is Sean Coombs, Puff Daddy, P Diddy. He's someone yes. who can divide uh, people's opinions on hip hop. Of course, uh, I kind yep. of see him someone who was in- influential in growing the culture. Very important. What's your view on um, Sean Coombs, P Diddy? So my first introduction to Puffy was when he was promoting parties and he was doing I think he did a, a party called Daddy's House or Puffy, yeah I think it was called Daddy's House in New York early 90s that's where I knew him from before I knew him as the A&R guy or guy at Uptown Records I knew him as like I'm in New York there's this guy you know Puffy who does these parties let's go so for me I've always been a fan of what he does because, again, I think he is in, was very important for the culture and he pushed the envelope of what was possible. Not only stylistically, but technically as well. So the idea that, you know, new samplers were coming out that were becoming superly powerful and then you had this guy who was like, yo, I, I don't need to sample, you know, two seconds of this record speeded up at 45. I can play at the normal speed and sample 32 bars. Let's go. For me, I was kind of like, all right, cool. I guess you're using the technology in the way that we never expected you to do. And I think his attention to detail, his work ethic, his aspirations and his dreams, really important. And you have to have people like that. And every musical scene 
you know, musicians are always like, I'm just doing it for the art, you know, it's not, I'm doing it for the art, it's not about the money, it's not about this, and it's not about that. You know, even when I was making records with Mo Wax and the term trip hop came up, and we'd be like, oh man, you know, we're trying to make alternative hip hop records, we're not trip hop. But actually, we were selling records off the back that someone had created the genre. And Puffy is really, really important, and he's still important. I wouldn't have started running if it wasn't for Puffy. Because I saw that he, I remember when he started training to run in New York Marathon, and I was just like, yo, man, but he's a rapper. Rappers don't run. They're not fit. They just lift. They don't run. And it was really inspiring for me to be like, yo, you know, this guy who you followed since you were a kid is now started running. You're going to start running too. So, I, you know, I kind of, you know, I will hear all of the like, you know, Puffy ruined hip hop. He didn't ruin hip hop. He just broadened it out to another, you know, bigger and wider audience and more possibilities. And a lot of the stuff that we take for granted now is because of people like Puffy, Puffy, Andre Harrell, Steve Stout, you know, people from that era. Really, really superly important. For the love of hip hop, stories from the vaults of the culture. Yeah, during lockdown, discogs have like, they've smashed it. Everyone's at home, bored, buying music. The price of music now is astronomical. Things that were just everyday, normal records that you saw around are now big records that cost big money. And I'm like, if you're taking £500 to buy a record or a grand or two grand or three, four, five grand to pay for a record by an artist of colour and you're not taking time to really listen to the message, what's the point in having it? Mm. Unless you're just trying to create a museum that only you get to be, only you get to play in. You know, and that for me, I'm just like, I, I didn't grow up in that era. I, I grew up in the era where people were not afraid to say what they thought. They weren't afraid to stand up for themselves and that was reflected in their art. And people so, were making you know, that that's... art for a particular reason. Public They're Enemy, art for Fela Kuti, Gil Scott Heron, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. They Thank were committing... You their souls on record for a reason yes they made money out of it but there was for a reason yeah. they were communicating that message exactly because and the thing i always say to people is like you have to understand that we are privileged to be in the music game it's a privilege to be able it's a privilege to get paid to play records by other people for the audience that's a privilege i'm i'm blessed to have that opportunity so at least let me, you know, really do the job to its proper, you know, what it's supposed to be. Let me not mess about. There's too many people in the music industry who are just in it because it's cool. It's a thing to mess about with. Yeah, wicked. You can go, you know, you can play your super black protest record and not really listen to the lyrics and then go back to your normal life. I can't. You know, and I never will be able to. Not in my lifetime. And I know that. So why as I have this platform... Let me stand up for what I believe in. Let me have something to say. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. For rights reasons, the music is restricted on the podcast. If you wish to hear an extended version of this show, please head to Mixcloud, find the moniker for the love of hip-hop, and for a small subscription fee, you'll have access to content with more music and more stories if you're happy to listen to the podcast version for free cool 
please do like, share and review. It all helps to gain recognition, which helps to producing more content. Thank you. Bye for now.